0: The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today's episode is a conversation with one of my favorite people, colleagues, and friends, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. She is the author of The Bottom Line for Baby which is an amazing book that covers research from sleep training to screens, thumb sucking to tummy time, all about what the science says. She also has co-authored my favorite parenting books, The Power of Showing Up with Dan Siegel, No Drama Discipline with Dan Siegel and more. I mean, this is an incredible gift to this field and. I love her so much. And what we're talking about today is we decided to answer listener questions together. So they are from you, from the DMs, from my Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. So keep sending them. Today, we're covering toddlers climbing out of their cribs. We are talking a little bit about sleep regression, being curious so that you can uncover what's going on in your child's behavior, problems with getting dressed, toddlers who seem like they have OCD and introducing a partner or new romantic partner to younger children. If you enjoy this episode, please don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, and write a little review. I love hearing from you. I love seeing the podcast get out there. So it always helps when you write reviews and have a wonderful week. So here's the first question. I would love some advice on how to manage my almost two-year-old who can climb out of the crib so no longer has the sides on. He's coming into our room every night now, despite being a great sleeper and sleeping through the night previously. He now wakes up multiple times wanting a bottle or to get up at 4 a.m. and wake up his brother and watch Bluey the cartoon. Help. (laughs) Okay.
1: (laughs) Well, how amazing that he has this new motor ability to do this, right? And he wants he's he's a party kid. He wants to not miss out on stuff. It's also much more fun and cozy to be with your parents. So if you can find a way to the, you know the the motherboard where all the warmth and all the cozy is, why not, right? So I think we always first want to make sure our kids are safe. So that's the first thing I would think about is, if the kid is able to climb up and over and could fall or jump, we want to come up with an immediate solution for that. Either leaving the sides down or converting to a toddler bed or a big kid bed or a mattress on the floor, whatever works for your family. Um, so I would start with that safety thing. And know too, that even when kids, I think here's a big concept, Elisa, and I would love to hear your specifics ab- about this too, is that we sometimes forget that development isn't linear. And what I mean by that is that kids have areas where they have these big areas of growth and then they have things that they're maybe not doing as well, or it seems like there are regressions. They're actually often not regressions, even though they seem like it. So you say, oh, he was a good sleeper, but he's not a good sleeper anymore. Well, that might be because he's had a new burst of motor ability and his body wants to be in motion more. Or another example of this is people are often surprised when their five, six year olds have new bouts of separation anxiety, where all of a sudden they don't want to go to the bathroom by themselves, or they don't want to go to a part of the house without you going with them. And parents often freak out like, oh no, my kid now has an anxiety disorder, but actually that separation anxiety is a result of a new cognitive development that allows them to imagine scarier things and have imagination about, you know, new frightening things. And they start conceptualizing um, as they move into five and six about how it's possible something could happen to their parents. So the separation anxiety is actually a reflection of a cognitive development where the emotional regulation and and the maturity around um, handling those kinds of big feelings hasn't yet caught up yet. So it's kind of asynchronous as it's getting there. So, yeah, I think, you know, kids who, often are good sleepers will go through periods where they're not. And I think that can be really disappointing when that happens because we're so excited when our kids start sleeping more. Um, But this really takes us back to problem solving. Okay. What is it? Let's be curious. What is it that's causing him to wake up? Um, What is it that he's interested in or that he's that? What need is he trying to have met there? And then how do you meet that need while also trying to protect sleep for the most people in the house? And that's going to look different for every family. What would you say, Lisa?
0: I love that you said, how do we meet the need of the child and how do we meet the needs of the family? Because of course, sometimes those are not the same and you have to find a balanced answer. So my first, I just think that's like the one to cling to the most. Yeah. And just thinking about practically speaking, like some rules to have in our head about, and again, I think it's going to be different for every family, as you said, but even if a child wants to watch TV in the middle of the night, or even if a child wants to eat and we feel uncomfortable not being able to meet those needs, but we know that they're safe and they don't actually need to watch TV and they don't actually need to eat, breaking those habits, even if it's going to cause some distress is probably going to help get back into the habit of sleeping because there isn't that potential. If I wake up, I might get all of these other things. Cause that yeah. is, like you said, it's a part, this is a partier. Yeah. Who so, wants so, to join the fun? Yeah. So maybe making things a little bit less exciting, which is so hard to do when you're exhausted and you're just like, whatever, take this yeah. food, take this show, take whatever you can, but leave me alone. Like I get that. But if the baby's needs can be met with some snuggles and then also the adults can get a little bit comfortable for the few days that it will probably take to get, the negative feedback from this two-year-old when yeah. they're not getting the TV or the drink, it probably, like, I think that's one part of it is stopping the middle of the night partying yeah. while still giving some of the middle of the night snuggling. And then you can build from there, like, off of all of it. The other thing is, I mean, this is definitely not scientific, what I'm about to say, but a sleep sack makes it really a little bit harder to climb and maybe a cozy sleep sack. And also if your child is good at climbing, like you said, I think the safety thing is the most important. So maybe it's not time for the toddler bed. Maybe it really is, you know, just lowering the mattress and making it so that, yes, they know how to climb out, but it's not, they're so good at it that that's not something that's going to be dangerous. Then yeah. I would want, I'd rather them kind of get a longer, longer use out of the crib. and. Yeah maybe bring things in that'll be a little bit more appealing. And then lastly, it is so much harder to get a kid out of your room than you coming out of their room. So like- if they are going to come out and you know that that's going to happen and you don't be exhausted anyway, meet them there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like yeah. put your own mattress down there versus having them come to you because you can work your way out once they get back into sleeping yeah. and off of TV and bottles and whatever, it's much harder to get them out of your room. And then, and I think this is in Tina's book, but if you're wondering if it's bad for a two-year-old to sleep with you, that's not bad for them. Sleep mm-hmm. is what's important. Yeah. For some families, it's bad because they're not happy as a family unit when there's a baby in the bed. And that's totally appropriate to say like, we don't want a kid in our bed. But if you do, because it's easier and you're tired and you're not doing it because you think that they shouldn't be sleeping with you, you can rest easy. That That's not the issue.
1: Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot of parent shaming, particularly around eating, feeding, sleeping decisions. And so we have to remember too and I say this in the bottom line for baby that every decision we make as a parent is connected to other everything else. It's a web of decisions. So, you know, and and a decision that might be right one week might not be right the next week. So we have to be flexible around all of this. You know, your your kids development unfolds in spurts, really fast sometimes and then sometimes it seems like it's taking a long time for certain things. But like for example, I didn't do any kind of like cry it out sleep training with my boys. But what that meant is that I was really, really exhausted. And that meant that I was really, really grumpy and impatient with my kids, right? Was that the right decision for my family? Probably. I look back on that. I'm glad I did it that way. But if I hadn't done that, if I had done a cry it out sleep training method and it was effective, and it's not effective for all babies, but if it was effective, I would have slept more, I would have been more patient. So there are pros and cons to every decision we make, it's all interconnected and we have to be flexible. I think particularly around sleep, there's a lot of fear-based parenting where we think, oh my gosh, if I do let my kids sleep with me, they'll be in my bed forever. And you know, they're going to be spoiled. There's a huge range of what is developmentally appropriate. There's a huge range of what works for families. You know, some kids are super sensitive and high need and they sleep better, and the parents sleep better when the kid is in the room with the parent. Totally fine. Yeah, I feel like when I was, when my boys were little, and I have three of them, there were times like I started in bed with my husband, then I was in like one person's room on the floor, then I was in a, you know, squeezed into a toddler bed, and I was like, I'm in four different males' beds a night, and you would think I had a different profession (laughs) if I said that publicly, but I was doing what got the most amount of people the most sleep. And sometimes it looked like I'm crammed in a corner of some, you know, something with a toe up my nose, you know, and it's just, you know, you just do what works for your family and let go of the judgment, let go of the fear. If your kid is still sleeping with you when they're 13, call a child psychologist. Cause yeah. that would be, that would definitely be something we would want to get some support around, but I have never come across that in all my clinical work. Kids, do eventually they, they
0: things they want to do on their own. Exactly. And that's maybe. a whole other episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And we've talked about this before, but I did cry it out with one of my kids and had, you know, obviously pangs of the normal, just heartache that comes with hearing your baby in distress, but it was like really short. And then she was just an epic sleeper and I was in a delightful mood and then I had a different kid that I couldn't bear it for 5 minutes cuz yeah. it just wasn't what she it wasn't what we as a dyad needed or something. Yeah. So I really like we I think we both feel pretty passionately that everybody needs to back off of back off hurting parents hearts on like the big decisions here and what works for you. Having yeah. said that, the TV and the food in the middle of the night, you just don't need. So it's like, it's not helping anybody. And it's right. an easy one to feel safe going like anything with kids when they're older and you you don't let them have something that they want. It feels better because you're like, I'm certain you're not supposed to go to this party at 2 a.m. It's like not hard for you to hear your kid in distress over a decision you're absolutely sure of. It's harder yeah. when they're two years old, because you feel like a little bit like, do I really care if they watch something at 2 a.m.? Do I really need to prevent the feeding? But that just feels like an easy thing to just say they really don't need that. And that might help them get off of this waking cycle.
1: Yeah. And I think the kind of to take it to a little bit bigger of a conceptual lens, it's really good for our two-year-olds and the kids at any age, but especially in those early years, for them to have a grown-up say, no, we're not doing that. And to set a boundary because they don't yet have the ability to put the brakes on yet. But we give them practice putting the brakes on not having things go the way they want them to, not getting it when they want. They're getting practice, putting the brakes on. And then we provide them with all the empathy possible, right? We're like, I know you're so sad. You can't watch your blue, whatever show it is. I know you're so sad. You really want to watch it. It's really sad when things don't go the way you want them to. Now, when we hold that boundary and we provide empathy, that is really what leads to the best outcomes. And by the way, setting boundaries and telling our kids no and then letting them feel no to the behavior, even if we're saying yes to the emotions that come with it, that is so powerful because setting those boundaries makes them feel safe. That makes them feel like there's a grownup who knows what's happening, who's in charge, who's gonna keep them safe. It really does make them feel loved and safe when we do that. And it builds the brain because they get practice putting those brakes on.
0: This question is, how do I handle a three-year-old dresser? Mornings are almost unmanageable because of getting dressed.
1: I love this question because it lets me talk about one of my favorite things and that is sensory processing. Now I am not an occupational therapist, so I am not going to step outside of my lane of expertise. First of all, be curious. Why is she having a hard time getting dressed? Now, in the Whole Brain Child, Dan Siegel and I talk about a getting dressed game because I had this issue with all of my kids at some point. Is your child not wanting to get dressed because she's interested in other things? Is she not wanting to get dressed because you are possibly being kind of rigid around you can get dressed by yourself, you have to do it by yourself, and you're really, your intention is to promote her autonomy, but she's wanting you to help her. That could be a whole other issue. Um, and to that one, I would say, it just, they like us to help them. It feels good. They will dress themselves. So go ahead and lean into that. If it makes things easier for you, that's totally fine. Um, Is she not wanting to get dressed because the feeling of the clothes on her body feel really uncomfortable to her? Those would all be different answers. So I'd be curious if your child, this is really common, actually, that kids have sensory processing challenges that an occupational therapist can evaluate and help support. But if that's the case, when they're getting dressed and putting clothes on um this can actually flood their nervous system with signals of threat so that can send them into really reactive states and usually parents don't know about sensory processing and so they think that their child is oppositional and disobedient and strong-willed but it's actually your child trying to not have their nervous system feel overwhelmed so i would really recommend there's a beautiful website spdstar.org it's the star clinic that is kind of what I think of the gold standard of uh, sensory processing and occupational therapy. And they have some great little screeners for you as a parent to go through and just read. It'll say like, is this your kid? And it has all these little things. So you can you can look at that. And uh, if that's the case, an occupational therapist would be a great person to connect with. Otherwise, go with, if it's not that, I would say your child might just want more connection, more help, more support, because that feels good. They like you to help doing it. Or if they're interested in other things, they don't want to do it. And you're putting a lot of pressure on in terms of like, hurry, you have to get dressed and there's high pressure and stress um, that can make kids avoid it. So I'll just say two more things and then I'll, I'll punt to you, Elisa. One is, remember that the brain is an association machine. So anytime we're talking about toilet training, meal time, getting dressed, you know, anything, even family game time, if it is full of stress, And it's full of angry, reactive, impatient parenting, which all of those will be all the time at some point, for sure, I can say from experience. Mm -hmm. But if consistently I'm yelling at my kid, it's time to go to sleep, go to bed. That's gonna be really unpleasant. And my kid's brain is gonna make an association between bedtime, it doesn't feel good. Mom yells at me a ton and that does not, I don't like bedtime. So they're gonna be more avoidant about bedtime. Do you see what I'm saying? So when it comes to getting dressed, if it's stressful and it's under a time crunch and you end up yelling or being impatient, there's going to be even more avoiding. So what we want to do is create it to be at least neutral or pleasant. So this is where we can use playfulness to elicit cooperation. So in the whole brain child, we suggest this is something I made up with one of my boys who would never get dressed until I made it a competition kind of game thing. So I would say, okay, First, put on your underwear and then I'm going to give you the next thing. So he'd put his underwear on and I'd say, okay, put your underwear on. Or I'd say, put your underwear on and run down to the end of the hall and tickle the door as quickly as you can and then come back. So he'd do it and he'd come back and I'd be like, okay, now put your shirt on. And then we're going to do five push push-ups and try to do a headstand. And even though that took a little bit more time, it saved so much time. It became something he looked forward to. It was fun. Like, so then it, it actually got easier and easier over time. What do you think,
0: Aliza? I love that. And also, even though it can sound like, oh, I don't have time for this, you save so much time in the arguing. Like you can knock off 20 minutes of chasing your child around and the mood shifts to something more positive. And also, whenever you can take the time for the more pleasant experience, you first usually save time. And also it feels like those are moments when... We have to get dressed in order to go do the learning opportunity. But actually the whole experience you just described is a beautiful engagement between mother and child and like fine motor and gross motor and to following directions and like all these things. So if you are thinking like, but I have to get them dressed to get them to this class or to the play date or to get out, it's the walk on the way and the getting dressed in those transitional moments that are actually the moments. Yeah. So love that. And also, this is totally, again, just practical, not founded in research. But if dressing, if if you've ruled out that there's a sensory issue and you've ruled out certain things that Tina mentioned, sometimes you have to just look at your schedule. Like, what is happening before we get dressed? And maybe that's the first thing we do in the morning instead of doing it after breakfast and after play because there are fewer distractions and it's the thing that you do first and then you don't have to worry about it. And might your child get sloppy and messy? Sure. But, you know, that feels like worth it because then you don't have to deal with pulling them out of whatever it is that they were doing to get them into this battle of getting dressed.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Dr. Jamie Chavez, who... Has written some beautiful books. She's an occupational therapist that works with me. She made that exact suggestion that you um, said about bedtime is whatever the least preferred task is, do that first when they're the least tired, most regulated. I think that works really well for the morning. And then let's just get really real about this too, Aliza. And that is that (laughs) sometimes, okay, yes, how lovely to do the getting dressed game. Like that's awesome, right? And it feels good, it's relational, like it's fun for you. It's much better than you know, yelling, all that stuff. And It's just really hard sometimes. And I I, I remember one time I was talking about using play and playful approaches to get your kid in the car seat and get your shoes on. And I had a mom in my parenting class. She was like, okay, fine. I know that will probably work, but I don't want to do an effing puppet show to get my kid to put her shoes on. Like sometimes I'm just going to cram her feet in the shoes and um, (laughs) we don't want to hurt our children's bodies, of course. But here's the thing. If your kid is three and they want to wear their pajamas to the grocery store, fine if they are half dressed and it's not, you know, 20 below zero and you get dressed halfway, half their clothes are on and then you
0: put the the rest in a bag.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you, you know, you pull them out of the stroller and, or the car seat and you put the rest on like, it's fine. It's totally fine. And sometimes you might just have to get them dressed and they might be unhappy and you might be really impatient. And you both might be really unhappy. And then you make the repair and you go, you know what? That didn't go very well, did it? You were not wanting to get dressed. I was in a hurry. That wasn't a very good moment, was it? And you know what? I love you. Let's just have fun the rest of the day, whatever. So it's totally fine. You don't have to do the getting dressed game or a puppet show. It's lovely. It's helpful. It's a tool, but sometimes we don't have the
0: luxury of using those tools and damage is not done
1: damage is not done. Like, let's not be so hard on ourselves. And if you, if you do something that doesn't feel good to you or your kid, make the repair and move on. You're they're three, it's hard and it's going to get easier. You know, I have a rule in my house that you cannot get your driver's license unless you are fully consistent without parental input about brushing and flushing. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and, and these are still things we work on. Up to the driver's license years. Okay. So there's a long road ahead for all of this stuff. And so, you know, sometimes people will be surprised. They'll ask me like, well, what do I do? This is the one I I get the most, you know, what do I do? Like, I really want to do this gentle, reflective conversation, respectful with my, you know, three-year-old, but my six-year-old is hanging the baby upside down with the legs. And I, how do I do that? I'm like, you don't, you don't. My best parenting advice in that moment is freaking triage. Yeah. You know, like that, sometimes that is the best approach is triage. You just make it through the moment with, you know, everybody as best intact as possible. And that's good
0: parenting too. That's good parenting too. Yeah. That's just going to be on repeat. Yeah. Because it is true. We can talk about tools. We will, we do. And also you have to lose the noise of that that moment now has to be a perfect, playful opportunity because otherwise, you know, every moment isn't as precious as we make it out to be. No, that's too much pressure. Yeah. And then sometimes it just ends up being precious. But you know what? I actually, full side note, that's totally not about three-year-olds, but yesterday my daughters were arguing about something so absurd. I mean, it would embarrass them for me to say it was so absurd, but I'm gonna, which <laughs> I'm going to shame them right now. No, they were like racing to get in the front seat for a four right. minute drive. It was something right. that stupid and they were so rude to each other. And I was just like, not in the mood for this. Yeah. And I, I just made like a very loud yell that said nothing. Like I just was like, Rah! cause I was so annoyed with them. And they, because I guess I'm not very scary, started laughing so hard. They both ended, I said, both of you get in the back seat because I want the front seat for my dog. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was dog so Because <laughs> <laughs> my dog is my nicest of yeah. my babies. And then I just yelled like a freaky weirdo, just a sound. And they both started laughing so hard because they were like, if you're going for scaring us, It's only just scary because you sound like you've lost your mind. Yeah. Yeah. You're not scary. (laughs) It was not my best moment because I just was like, "Ah, I can't take this anymore. But I did remember like, A, every moment is not so precious. B, it didn't matter that I lost it and was like incapable of even ignoring this like typical nonsense sibling argument. It just was a moment. And I got made fun of by my own children, which felt... Not great, <laughs> but it took all of us out of it. And then yeah. we all did laugh. Yeah. These moments are not so I mean, it feels a lot easier when you have when you have teenagers that you can do that with. So I know that's different, like a three year old where you're just like, Oh my God, just I need to make this happen and not be a nightmare. But yeah. I do think remembering each of those moments, they can just be over soon and then you can move on. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Doesn't that was that- a little off are topic. You know? It just takes the pressure off, right? Yes. And we just always want to do that because that pressure to have that preciousness can often make a tension in your nervous system that takes all the preciousness out of it, of those special moments. Totally. Here's a good one. How do I know if my toddler has OCD? She's very rigid with routine She has to repeat the same phrases, especially in stressful situations like bedtime, reacts with fierce meltdowns if any small detail of the routine is changed. If I continue the routine, am I encouraging more serious tendencies? There is so much to unpack here. So much. And let's separate it from actual diagnosis, which you can also talk about. But I think the big picture is like, If you look at toddlers and then you look at the DSM, like the Diagnostic Statistical (laughs) Manual, like where people, I'm not explaining this to Tina, I'm explaining this to the listeners, (laughs) but where you might look for something that is classified as a disordered behavior, which is its own story. Toddlers would really they would check every box for so many even
1: things. can meet the diagnostic criteria for many mood disorders, for many. sure. <laughs>
0: so so it can be scary if you know that there are certain things that you're noticing and you can fast forward to a diagnosis. So I just wanted to say that to kind of get that out of the as the primary thought when you're noticing something going on. And also I'm sure you can address OCD, but let's do both because there's a lot to unpack here.
1: Yeah, where I think I would start if that parent were sitting in front of me asking that question is I would really want to tune into the amount of fear. Because, you know, that can be really the underbelly of a lot of questions like that. Because what I would be curious about is if there's a family history of OCD. And, of course, that would be important for diagnostic investigation as well. But it could also be part of a mom who is hypervigilant to worry about those because Mm -hmm. maybe her brother has OCD or maybe she has OCD or her spouse does. And so maybe there's this, this fear. And so sometimes when we have these fears, we turn our, our attention gets kind of hyper-focused and we start making sense in a way that may not be what other people would see. You know, we start kind of creating and constructing a reality around that. So I would say that if there is a family history and you truly are worried that your child has OCD, I would highly recommend calling a child psychologist um, or talking to your pediatrician because, and I, I would prefer a child psychologist in this situation, but here's why. If your child does have some early signs of OCD, early intervention is always helpful. So if that's the truth, then that's a really good thing to know about. And it's a really good thing to get support around. If it's not, then you can cross that off your worry list. You have ruled it out and then you're going to have, you're going to just have more peace internally either way. If you really feel like there's a family history, you're seeing it, it's getting intense. Now let's put things in context developmentally, toddlers are weird. They're weird. Like you said, they could meet all kinds of diagnostic criteria for, um, toddlers are weird. Toddlers are weird. And you know, they do weird things like ritualized behaviors. And they, some kids are complete train wrecks in a room where they don't care about it. And other toddlers will, and preschoolers will line things up and codify things and whatever. And it has a lot to do with, their inborn temperament and how highly conscientious they are and how, you know, do they have more of like an engineering kind of brain or, you know, they're just amazing. They're amazing to watch. They're incredibly brilliant already. So I would be curious about the behaviors. Is it like what your child likes to do as part of play or is it really that you see more of the kind of ritualized behaviors during moments of stress um, or separations? Like, is there an anxiety piece there? Mm -hmm. Aliza, I think one of the hardest parts of our job is to support parents in, I haven't yet talked about this. We could do a whole episode on this, but how do we support parents in doing things in ways that they want to do better, right? How do we encourage parents, give them tools, help them do better, but also without shaming them for, Mm -hmm. for what they're doing. Right. And so one of the ways I like to explore this in a way that's, that's not parent shaming. I, I don't want it to be, we should always ask ourselves, is there a role that I'm playing in what's happening as a parent? Okay, that's not to blame a parent. But sometimes when our child, for example, is experiencing a lot of anxiety, we're playing a big role in that because we are bringing a lot of anxiety to the moment. And then we get anxious about our child's anxiety. And what we're doing is we're amplifying everybody's nervous system arousal instead of soothing it. So I would sort of explore that with this parent as well. Like, you know, where are you running in terms of your anxiety and do you, what kinds of supports do you need to be actually more the safe harbor, the safe haven, the one who soothes, instead of the one who amplifies states of distress. So that would be another area to explore. I think too, that the other thing we have to put in context is COVID. So this is a two-year-old. So let's think about where we are in the world and um, how your child's experiences may have been different from what other kids have experienced pre-COVID more time at home, maybe less outside stimulation. So there may be some um, heightened anxiety just because of exposure to new experiences as the world opens up. This is not, I'm not worried about children being behind. I trust development. When kids have exposure, their development rises to the occasion. So I'm not worried about that, but it might be a transition. It might be that this is a period of transition for your child. So um, I think that's another thing to think about. When kids line things up, control things, organize things, give commands and demands, this is also really developmentally what we would experience, what we might experience, how it might present for a two year old, because they're developmentally in a place where they are moving to more individuation, more differentiation from you. So I often think about children's behaviors as their best adaptation to their environment. So, for example, and this is another sensory example, sometimes kids who have sensory integration challenges can be very rigid and do bear, you know, like I had a client I worked with one time who would only drink out of a blue cup. I have to drink out of the blue cup. If the blue cup was in the dishwasher, he would have these monster meltdowns that would turn, you know, really physically aggressive. And what he was trying, he wasn't oppositional, you know, he wasn't a bad kid. He was trying to make his world work. And when he had the blue cup, He felt better. And so I think sometimes kids do these kind of ritualized behaviors or they do these things that seem really funky to us, but it's a way for them to control their environment and and experiment. Maybe he's coding by size and color and you're not even picking up on the cool artistic pattern he's got going. So I think there's a lot, like you said, a lot to unpack there. Those would be things I would think about and want to explore further.
0: Well, and, and really highlighting what you said about a, there is something that we think of as maladaptive that's often so adaptive. Like if you are anxious because of novel experiences, it's incredibly adaptive to find ways to make your day super predictable and to ritualize certain things. And so we do that with kids in so many different ways. We say that kids with, for example, ADHD are maybe in a, using some maladaptive ways of focusing their attention in a way that we think of as maladaptive, but actually it's exactly what they need to be doing to survive the experience that they have living in the brain that they have. So I really love our stepping back as parents and just looking at what are these behaviors doing to support this child in their for their experience? And it doesn't mean that you don't want to help them learn to adjust, but it just means that, wait a second. And especially, like you said, in COVID, I mean, finding ways to make sense of our world yeah. as a two-year-old. And creating would,
1: predictability.
0: Yeah. Like that is a very adaptive kid. Yeah, totally. And of course, like you said, if there is a real concern, you should absolutely, yeah. there's no harm ever in checking something yeah. out because you yeah. want to, or the earlier intervention is of course better, but toddlers are weird.
1: They're weird. They're funky. And, and I think too, you know, this, this leads back to kind of some of the stuff that Dan Siegel and I talk about in no drama discipline is that behavior is communication and it's often communication about their developmental capacity at that moment. It's communication about their nervous system, you know, in that very moment it's communication about what skills haven't yet been um, built or, you know, those kinds of things. So, so another way to think about that is, you know, his behavior might then, if you look with curiosity and say, okay, what would be, you know, what would be a skill I would want him to build after observing this? I might want him to build some, a skill about flexibility, Flexibility, exactly. right? So how can I help him do that? Well, we know that kids learn best from modeling. So we model flexibility and we know they learn best from practicing and doing it themselves. So, you know, we play games with them or things spill and things happen naturally in the world that don't go that way. And then we go, "Oh, well, spills happen." And we, you know, we we do these kinds of things. So, I'm thinking Eliza about this little boy, he was probably 5 or 6 at a at a school where I was consulting. And he kept getting in trouble. He was a really really sweet kid who knew the rules, who never got in trouble. But as the year unfolded, he kept having more and more incidences um, during library or recess or lunch, like the unstructured times outside of the classroom, where he was using inappropriate language a lot. Um, So he was like throwing out butt crack, you know, in library. And he knew that wasn't okay. He knew he was going to get in trouble. The teacher kept talking to him about it. So they were like, we just don't know what to do. Like we've sent notes home. The parents have talked to him. So I said, okay, well, let's start with curiosity. Maybe his behavior is his best attempt to work through something. Let's be curious. And it turned out, as we became curious, that we've uncovered that this little guy had a really hard time entering play with his peers. And when he said butt crack, they laughed and he He was successful. He was successful socially in entering their play and getting included in their group. So basically, his behavior is communication saying, I need skill building around how to enter play with my peers in a way that's appropriate. So instead of doing something to him, giving him a consequence, we needed to do something for him to help him build those skills. So that's the other thing, just that's a whole other discipline thing is to think about, is the way I'm responding to this particular behavior gonna make it more likely that my child has another option or tool or can do this better the next time or not? Like if we just yell at kids and send them to their rooms, how does that help them build a skill to do it better the next time, right? if we take this kid's recess away or send a note home, how does that help him be more successful socially with his peers the next time he's in library? So we needed to give him some phrases, some questions that he could keep in his pocket that he could pull out. And once he had those, he had better tools and he could be successful socially without the inappropriate behavior.
0: And even though it was inappropriate behavior, I love that because he was again, very adaptive. He figured out that he needed to do something else to get in with friends. So that was incredible.
1: It's kind of brilliant. And that's where I often start with parents is like, your kid's kind of amazing. And there's this bad behavior. They're like, oh my gosh, we think we're going to get kicked out of the school. And I'm like, no, your kid's amazing. Like he was brilliant. He came up with a strategy. Yeah. Like, this is cool. This is super adaptive. Now let's help him find appropriate a, a wider, a wider <laughs> toolbox. You know, he needs yeah. some other tools. Oh, I <laughs> love that. He butt story. crack with his brother, but you know, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, okay. Why don't we do one more? One more. Okay. I'm so greedy, but we're going to have you back way more regularly. No fun. Don't you you think? Yeah, I love it. (laughs) Okay, so this is a question that says, when and how do I introduce a new person to my toddler? It's a new friend slash someone I'm dating. I keep hearing a year, but I can't imagine continuing a relationship with someone that long if they haven't at least met my child and I could see how they are with children.
1: Wow. That's a tricky one. Yeah.
0: Um and we also have to, I guess, write our own story about the background before right. the, making this decision because it would sort of depend on the circumstances around right. the co-parent, right. et cetera.
1: Right. Has there never been a co-parent? Has the co-parent passed away? Has the co-parent, are they in the middle of a divorce? Like what, you know, there's a lot of the background stuff. One major principle around that is that we always want to help our children make sense of things. So we are meaning makers for our children. We want, yeah, it's one of my favorite phrases to use. We are, we are meaning makers. And you know, you know, this parents know this, you know, those of you who have taken your kids to the playground and they fall when they're 18 months and they look at your face. And if you look freaked out, they cry. But if you, look relaxed and smile at them, they may not cry, right? This is how we are meaning makers for our children. So we have to help them make sense. Children have to fill in the blanks if we don't help them. Now, obviously this does not mean we tell our children every detail. Um, This does not mean that they are our therapists. And, you know, so there are appropriate boundaries there. One Mm -hmm. really helpful phrase, I had a friend who was going through a divorce And uh, the child was like in fifth or sixth grade. And he was saying, you know, I never want to lie to him, but I don't feel like I can disclose a lot of this is about the other parent. And I don't feel like that's my place. And I said, you know, you can say to your son, I will never lie to you. And you're not ready for this information yet, or this is not information. That is something that, that a child should know about their parents. And so, you know, we don't want to... That doesn't mean we have to tell our children everything, but we want to help them even make sense about our decisions about what we're going to share and and what we're not. So yes, backstory is going to be important. Of course, we always want to make sure our children are safe. So I would really make sure that, you know, you have uh, done your due diligence in making sure this is a super safe person for your child, including um, how your child's going to feel, sharing emotions with them, um, not just around sexual abuse prevention, but around You know, are they going to be someone who is kind to your child and is loving to your child? So you want to always make sure, you know, you're kind of starting with those foundational pieces. I don't know that I think we should ever follow rules like that. If someone made a rule that it should be one year, every child is different, every parent is different, every situation is different. Maybe you you are going to fall madly in love, and the person's going to move in with you or get married in a very short period of time. So do what you feel is right. One of the messages I give over and over in the bottom line for baby is to trust yourself and to trust your child. And so I think I would talk to the people who know you, that you trust, who are your closest friends, who are your family and get their takes and then decide whether or not to listen to them. Don't just go with their advice. Trust yourself. You matter too you matter too. And yes, your child should always be your top priority, but that doesn't mean you're not a priority. And so if it's really hard on you, if you want to be with this person and your child, you feel like it's safe. Then you think about, you know, introducing that person into your child's life. And then you're also making sense of that. You might decide that this is going to be a friend and you're introducing them to a friend as a friend, and they're not spending the night at your house, you know, for a good long period of time that also rests in your values and what you you know what you feel comfortable with. So there's no right answer. Think about yourself, think about your child, gather information, trust your instinct. I don't have anything else to say about that. Do you, Eliza? I bet you do.
0: I mean not really. I think that one year thing comes maybe from there there is some research that you should wait a year after separation to introduce a new partner but that doesn't mean you always wait a year when you're with a new partner. It's just this particular, you know, when you, not that the world ever works in such a pretty easy, clean way, but if it's, you know, there's this, it's just to give distance between a co-parent separating and introducing a new relationship thereafter. I completely agree with you. And even then every circumstance is going to be different, but you have to also honor your own functioning as a parent. So if that really is a person who is going to be in your life, it's hard to do that for a year as a single parent with one child and, and navigate that.
1: And I think because we always have to think about how what we communicate with our words is important in terms of the actual words, but there's always implicit stuff behind stuff. So if kids know something's going on, and we're not saying anything about it, they're also getting a really important message, this implicit message that is, mom's not going to tell me what's going on. She doesn't think I'm ready for it. She doesn't, she can't trust me with it. There's something going on that maybe isn't good, you know, whatever. So there's all this messaging around, we don't talk about this. We're not talking about this, right? Which is why it's so important that we just have ongoing conversations around, really kind of everything. Um, because if we don't talk about stuff, kids are super perceptive. They're way more perceptive than we know. And they overhear us in our home much more than we think they do. So they will definitely fill in the blanks or know something's going on. And then if we don't talk to them about it, then they learn that this is something we don't talk about. And maybe they shouldn't even ask about it. So that's that's the kind of hidden message behind the message if we don't name it to tame it.
0: Ugh, I love you to the moon.
1: I love you to the moon. Let's do this again.